Dear Father in Heaven, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here in this beautiful place and worship you, uh, to hear your words, and we pray that that is what we'll hear this morning, that you will speak. In Jesus' name, amen. The year 1783 was one of the most important years in American history. And in that year, George Washington defeated the British Army at the Battle of Yorktown, which really led to the end of the Revolutionary War. The British General Cornwallis and his army had gotten trapped inside of the city of Yorktown. They were surrounded by French naval forces by the ocean. Uh, General Washington and his forces were by land. And the British actually tried to escape from Yorktown so they could get to another location and fight on another day. But in an interesting turn of events, the weather changed. And just as they were escaping, a gigantic unexpected storm came up and basically blew them back into the harbor in Yorktown so they could not get away. It was one of the, the probably the turning point of the Revolutionary War. The British then surrendered and signed the Treaty of Paris, and that was pretty much the end. Shortly after that, when the last British troops were sailing out of New York City Harbor, George Washington, the commander-in-chief, met with the Continental Congress. And at this point, George Washington was really well set up. He was commander-in-chief of a victorious army who just defeated a superior foe, kicked them out of the country. He was loved and respected by not only his own army officers and the people of the adoring nation that uh, he had just basically freed from tyranny, And he had this opportunity before him for absolute power. And you know what he did? He resigned. That's unexpected, right? Nobody saw that coming. General Washington was at the pinnacle of his career. And he said, I want to resign, and I'm going to go back to life as a private citizen. And this is what he said. to Continental Congress. He said, having now finished the work assigned me, I retire from the great theater of action and bidding an affectionate farewell to this august body under whose orders I have so long acted, I here offer my commission and take my leave of all the employments of public life. And then the next day he headed back to Mount Vernon because that's exactly what he intended to do. The an individual who worked with George Washington and actually made a painting of this event, whose name was John, Th- uh, John Trumbull, he said, "'Tis a conduct so novel, so inconceivable to people who, far from giving up powers that they possess, are willing to convulse the empire to acquire more." The historian Thomas Fleming said, "'This was is the most important moment of American history. The man who could have dispersed a feckless Congress and obtained for himself and his officers riches worthy of their courage was renouncing absolute power to become a private citizen. He was putting himself at the mercy of politicians over whom he had no control 
and in whom he had little confidence. Why is this such an unusual thing that George Washington did? Why did it, um, why did it strike these people enough that there was multiple paintings made of George Washington as he resigned his commission to Congress? There's something alluring to people, to the human race, about power. We're addicted to it. And when we have it, we want more. The British historian Lord Acton said, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. There's something about it. But for a person to be willing to give up an opportunity for absolute power is something different. And it should remind you of someone else. And we turn to our scripture reading this morning. I shouldn't say our scripture reading, but our verse that we're going to be, passage that we're going to be focusing on, which is Luke 23. And I'd invite you, if you would like to, to turn to Luke 23 and follow as I read along. Luke 23, and starting with verse 1, it says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to pay tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he had belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, they sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man, one who was misleading the people. After examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them again, once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him. A third time, he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted, and he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they had asked. 
but he delivered Jesus over to their will. See, the Jews had a problem here because they had the Sanhedrin, which was the religious authority in Jerusalem for the Jews. But because they were under the control of the Romans, the Sanhedrin did not have political or civic or state power. It didn't have the power to kill somebody, which is what they wanted to have done here. And they needed to convince Pilate that this man was a threat. Not a threat to their religious system, because Pilate didn't care anything about that. They needed to convince Pilate that this man was a threat to him and to the political system and to the Romans. And so they made these accusations about him saying people shouldn't pay taxes and saying uh, that people sh- that he was a king. And so Pilate, he's been wakened up early in the morning by these Jews. He doesn't want to deal with this guy. It's one more revolutionary that's being accused. And he just cuts right to the chase. Look, are you the king or what, he says to Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? That's his question. And Jesus' answer to this question is not really a yes or no answer because it can't be. Because in the 10 minutes that Jesus is going to be with Pilate or however long it was, he can't answer this question this way. It's kind of like there are trick questions, right? There's questions that are difficult to answer in, in a yes or no. For example, when did you stop cheating on your income tax? Right? If you say yes... Or if you say, or you say, uh, you know, whatever you answer the question, you're going to be in trouble because you have to explain. Well, first of all, no, I don't cheat on my income taxes, and I have to explain this answer. So Jesus gave an answer that was perfectly ambiguous, and I think the ESV translates it very well. It says, "You have said so." That's how he answered him. You have said so. And so there's two ways you could look at that question. One way is uh, you could translate it as being, um, that's what you say, which is a negative translation, right? That's what you say. It implies that that's not really true. On the other hand, he could have said, it is as you say, which implies that, yes, it is true. But the truth is somewhere in between there. And so Jesus has to answer this in an ambiguous way. Um, it reminds me of something that happened in 1974. The Russians lost one of their nuclear submarines, the K-129, sank to the bottom of the ocean. And the CIA, CIA got this brilliant idea that, hey, we could go and get that submarine, figure out what all the Russian secrets are. We have to raise it up from the bottom of the ocean. And so they had this ship that was specially made for this purpose. It was called the Glomar Explorer. Maybe you've heard of it, the Glomar Explorer. Well, eventually, a reporter with the LA Times got wind of this whole operation and wanted to ask some specific questions about it. And when they thought about how they could answer this question, they couldn't reveal the truth, obviously, and they couldn't really deny it either. And so what they did is they came up with something that's now called the Glomar response, which is, I can neither confirm nor deny what you're asking about. 
And that's actually like now codified in federal law, that that's the Glomar response. I can neither confirm nor deny. And so it's perfectly ambiguous answer. And this is what Jesus gave to Pilate. Now, why did he give him this ambiguous answer? He wasn't just trying, playing hard to get. He wasn't trying to avoid the consequences of whatever he said. But the reason I believe that Jesus gave this answer is because he wanted Pilate to understand the absolute nature of reality and, the tr- and cause him to seek further truth. And the truth was that the power that Jesus exercised here on earth and the power that he was seeking and the kingdom that he was attempting to build was nothing like Pilate understood. It was nothing like he was imagining. And so Jesus wanted him to understand that. We can't think about this in terms of our understanding of the Messiah today. So right now, when we think of Jesus as the Messiah, we think of the person who saves us from our sins, who sanctifies us, who glorifies us, who will take us to heaven. But that is not what the people of that age understood a Messiah to be. Think about the road to Emmaus when the two disciples were walking along the road and they they were talking about the events that had just happened. They were talking about the crucifixion and they said, we thought that this man was him who would redeem us or redeem Israel. So what does it mean when we think of redeeming? We think of it in a very spiritual context, but at the time, they were thinking redeem means basically to free us as being slaves from the Romans. That's what they had in their minds. And, and Pilate was not asking this question in a spiritual way either. He was asking it, are you the king? Are you the guy that's going to come in with swords and tanks and guns and try to take over or not? What's your deal? And so Jesus responded to him. And the reason he responded that way is because Pilate needed to understand the difference between human power and the power that Jesus was exercising. And when we look at human power, at the end of it, it's coercion, it's control, it is force, and self-promotion. That's the basics of human power. Jesus had a power that was entirely different from anything that they understood, and that was the power to change hearts and minds. The power to change hearts and minds. I think the Jews understood that because they knew what Jesus was about. They'd heard him speak. They'd seen him draw people to himself. And they wanted him dead because they said, this man, if we let him go, he's going to convince everybody and it's going to destroy the system that we have in place that gives us power. And they didn't want to see that happen. And so that's why they had to do what they thought they had to do. They did not, they understood. On the other hand, Pilate, Herod, the political coercive authorities that were in charge of the state at the time, they saw Jesus as being no threat to them. Pilate said, I find no fault in this guy. He's done nothing. He's done nothing. Herod when he went to Herod, he, Herod asked him, show us, show us your power, you know, perform a miracle, something that we can see, 
something that we can really understand that you have power. Demonstrate it for us. Jesus didn't do that because that's not the kind of power that he was talking about. And so neither Pilate nor Herod considered Jesus a threat. If they had, sure, they would have killed him. It wasn't a problem for Pilate to crucify revolutionaries. He had no problem with that. Herod, this was the, the Herod that followed the Herod, his father, who had killed all the infants in Bethlehem. Not a nice guy. And in fact, Caesar Augustus said that your life expectancy is better as one of Herod's pigs than one of his children because he'll stop at nothing to retain his power. Jesus' power was different. He said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. This is not the kind of power that Pilate or Herod understood. And it's really a paradox because something that they said to Jesus when he was on the cross was they said, others he saved, but himself he cannot save. And the reality is is that that was a true statement. That was true. In order to save us, he could not save himself. He could not exercise his power in that way. Did he have the power? Of course he did. Jesus had to be careful with how he even looked at Pilate and the soldiers. If he gave them the wrong look, they would all be fallen over on the ground. Pilate would lie dead on the pavement and Jesus would be a free man. But it would have accomplished nothing. And we would not be here today. It was a different kind of power that Jesus had to exercise. And sometimes it's hard for us to understand that as humans because it sounds like this power of love and forgiveness. It doesn't sound like much in our minds because we're so used to this world's system of power that we don't always see the power that really is there. So we're going to take a couple minutes to understand and look at how that works. And Napoleon, towards the end of his life, while he was in exile, actually had something to say about this. This is what he said. Alexander, referring to Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I, Napoleon, built a kingdom on force, but has melted away But Jesus Christ has built a kingdom on love and at this hour, millions are ready to die for him. See, Napoleon was realizing something. He had built this kingdom by force. He had conquered everybody. He was so successful. And there at the end of his life, he's realizing all this work I did, all this force that I used, it's amounting to nothing. It really doesn't last but he recognized a different kind of power in Jesus Christ. He recognized that that power could change the whole world. He said millions to this day, millions of people are willing to die for Christ. He realized he doesn't have that kind of power. Alexander the Great didn't have that kind of power. Caesars, all of them, didn't have that kind of power. Jesus had a power that was entirely outside of this world. 
let's take a look at that. So Jesus said, when he commissioned his disciples, he said, all power, or another way to translate that is all authority, all power and authority has been given to me. Go therefore. That's his commission to the church. He says, I have all the power. You don't need to seek power from any other source. All the power you need is in me. I think that Paul describes this really well in the book of Romans in chapter 8 when he talks about some amazing concepts. Just look at the very beginning of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He starts out by saying there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. He goes on and he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul is recognizing that this power in Jesus is the power of, yes, self-renunciation, self-forgetfulness, willingness to sacrifice for someone else. But it's also the power that can raise you from the dead to life. This is a promise of resurrection. Okay, is that power? What, what earthly uh, authority can possibly promise you resurrection? None. He goes on and he says, not only that, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness in our spirit that we are the children of God. Not only are we promised a resurrection, but we're promised that we can become a part of God's family to the point where we can be so close to the Father that we can call him by the most endearing name that anyone can call their father, Daddy or Abba. And I think Paul is, he goes on and he talks about the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. The Spirit prays for us because we don't know how to pray for ourselves. He goes on and he says, Those whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Not talking future tense. It's talking about right now. This is a done deal. At the end of this, Paul is so amazed and overwhelmed by what he's written. He says, what should we say then to these things? What can you even say about this stuff? It's so amazing. He says, what can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, with him, also not freely give us all things? He gave us everything he had. If he was willing to give us his own son, you think he's holding back on anything that we possibly need? Not a chance. He gave us everything. Paul explains that Jesus Christ himself is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. If you have Jesus and the Holy Spirit interceding for you at the right hand of God, I think you're pretty well covered, right? Paul ends this, this passage by saying, he's just, it's, it's amazing. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. What is he talking about here? Well, that's some power because that word, more than conquerors, is basically saying you're a (laughs) hyper-conqueror. Not just a conqueror, but a hyper-conqueror. If someone asks you what you do, 
or you introduce yourself, don't say you're a hyper-conqueror because they might not understand that. But, but that's what you are in Christ Jesus. You're a hyper-conqueror because of him. That's the power he has. And here's what he, he sums up by saying, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. We are hyper-conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, any kind of power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know what else there is to say. I mean, that's everything. That's the kind of power that Jesus offers us. But yet, for some reason, we as humans are constantly allured by coercive, controlling, forceful power, which is the very basis of the system here on this earth. Why is that? Throughout history, God's people, the church, has sought a power, not the power that Jesus is describing, not the power that Paul describes, but the power of the state. And so this is, as the sermon title is, the greatest threat to religious liberty. It's when the church seeks the power of the state instead of relying on the power of God to change hearts and minds. And no matter when it happens, it always results in oppression. Always. Whenever the, sh- the church seeks political power, it results in oppression. Just look at verse 23 of our scripture reading in Luke. Let's go back over it, if I can get my pages here in the wind. In verse 23, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Their loud cries to the political power at the time, to the power of the state, loud cries, do what we want, crucified the Son of God. That was God's people that did that. Why is it? that God's people seek that kind of power. Jesus said to Pilate in the book of John, it describes how he went on to explain to Pilate, my kingdom, he said, is not of this world. My kingdom's not of this world. This is not the kind of power I'm seeking, he explained. And I think he wanted Pilate to understand that. I don't think Pilate ever really got what he was saying. but That's what he wanted him to understand. My kingdom is not of this world. And so we can look at that and we can say, well, that's great because we as a church, we understand that our church is not going to be the one that seeks political power. We're not going to oppress people. We're not going to try to enforce our religious observance on other people. There's, there's no torture chambers in the basement of the GC, correct? Right. So we're good, right? Our church doesn't do that. We don't seek political power. But here's where it comes to home. And that is, what about us as individuals? Where is our focus? And what power are we seeking? Are we seeking the power that Jesus is offering? Are we seeking to change hearts and minds 
through the power of love, through the power of self-forgetfulness? Or are we tempted by that alluring call of political power? Maybe not us, we're not running for office, but maybe we really want somebody too, or we really hope that someone will win. What is our focus? What is the, the focus of our hashtags on, on Facebook or the slogan on our hat? What sign is in our yard? Does it say Jesus or does it have someone else's name on it? That's the question for us each as individuals is, are we, as God's people, seeking the wrong kind of power? If we're thinking that the solution to all the problems in the world is we got to keep X person in office, or if you're thinking that the solution is we got to get rid of that guy and put this guy in office, barking up the wrong tree, because it is not the power of man that's going to make this a better planet. It's the power of God, not through legislation, not through enforcement, not through coercion but through the power to change hearts that only Jesus can offer. He said, if, I draw, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to me. That's all we have to do is lift him up. He has the power that we need. There's a section of the Desire of Ages that says this. When the Spirit of God, with its marvelous awakening power, touches the soul, it abases human pride, worldly pleasure and position and power are seen to be worthless. Worthless. Human power and pride, position, all worthless. When we rightly understand by the Holy Spirit. So we have to be careful with who we identify with, with who we place our our trust in, and who we give our devotion to. I want to tell you a story in closing that comes from 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23 tells us about a time when David and his mighty men were in the wilderness, and it was shortly after David had become king. And at that point, David was still kind of working some things out. And the Philistines, the enemy, were actually inside. They had taken over the city of Bethlehem. They were inside of the city of Bethlehem, camped out in there. Philistine garrison camped out in Bethlehem. Not a good situation for David and his men. They had to do something about it. And they were out there, I I picture this in my imagination, where they're sitting, not like we are here in the shade, but maybe out in some really dry area. There's rocks around, not too much green things growing because it's so hot. And David and his men are sitting around. And David's just sitting there and he expresses this desire of his heart because he's been thinking, how thirsty I am. I need some water. He says, I wish I could have a drink of water from that well that's there in Bethlehem. You know the one that's by the gate right there in Bethlehem, that 
great, wa- great tasting water that they have there. Man, I wish I could have a drink of that. David doesn't issue a command to anybody. He doesn't, he doesn't tell his, his men, hey, go get me some of that water. He doesn't even, he barely expresses just his desire. Boy, I wish I could have some of that water. And three of his men, they're sitting there in the circle. They look at each other, give a little head nod. And they quietly slip away from the group. And they go and they strap on their swords and they get a water pitcher. And they head towards Bethlehem. It's only been recently that I really understood this story because when I first read it, I pictured these three men sneaking into Bethlehem at night Kind of like we read about with David sneaking up to King Saul and taking his water pitcher and his spear that was stuck in the ground. Do you remember that story? So I pictured it like that, imagining them sneaking in, really quiet. And I thought the danger is that, well, they're going to wake somebody up, and that's how they might be in trouble, right? That is not what the Bible says. When I started reading it more closely, it says that these men broke through the camp of the Philistines. Broke through. What? That's a different wording than I imagined. Breaking through something is not a quiet undertaking. No, these men were not breaking, they were not sneaking in. They were breaking through the Philistines. They went, the three of them, against an entire garrison of Philistine soldiers, risking their lives, obviously, fighting their way in. I'm sure it was a bloody battle. They go in, and I imagine two of them had to keep fighting the Philistines while the third guy is filling the pitcher with water. Are you done yet? Come on, man. <laughs> we got to hold these guys off. And then they all have to fight their way back out through the Philistines and go back to David. They're sweaty. They're tired. They're bloody. And here they are arriving in the camp and they go up to David and they offer him this pitcher of water that they got from the well in Bethlehem. And David looks at this. He understands the whole scene. He reads what happened. He's a fighting man. He knows what's going on. And he says, I can't drink this water. Is this water not the blood of the men who've sacrificed their lives and risked their lives to get me this water? I'm not worthy to drink drink this. And that's important because if you remember our scripture reading that the young lady read, David recognizes that All power, all greatness, all authority, all majesty is God's alone and nobody else's. And David realizes that nobody, no human, is worthy of this level of devotion where someone would, at their barely expressed wish, risk their lives like that to just get him a drink of water that he kind of wanted. Imagine if going to Trader Joe's, you had to fight through armed soldiers to get there to get... You know, I mean, this is, and David realized this and he said, I can't drink this water. I, as a human, am not worthy of that kind of devotion. And so he poured it out on the ground as a sacrifice and an offering to God. I think those men understood what David was doing. David was saying, you know, this, this is devotion that is God's alone. 
So, as we think about our lives, the things that we would like to see happen in the world, the things that we think could go better, where are we relying on our power being? And who is our devotion to? Is it to any human? Is it to any system? Is it to any ideology? Is it to any um, political slogan? What is it that we put most of our trust in, put all of our trust in? It reminds me of a song that I read this morning, or I listened to this morning. And that song, it says, Above all, above all powers, above all kings, above all nations, above all thrones, all of these things were true of Jesus. He was above all, above all principalities and rulers. And yet, the song goes on and says, he was crucified, laid behind a stone. He lived to die, rejected and alone, like a rose trampled on the ground. He took our place and thought of us above all. This morning, as he thought of us above all, let's think of him above all. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for our time together this morning. And I I just can't express my amazement at your power and your love to us and your patience with us. And we ask that you would help us to understand that fully in our minds and to really grasp that concept and to realize the devotion that we owe to you. We see a little reflection in what David's men did for, did for him, unbidden. And we want to say that we want to be that devoted to you help us to get to the point where we're leaning on your every word, we're waiting for your command, even for your expressed desire that we can do your will. So help us to understand that in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.